If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. First of all, Happy New Year. And on this podcast, we've got a suitably bizarre slice of history to kick off 2021. If there's something I learned from the conversation that you're about to hear... It's that people have made some incredibly weird books down the ages. I was speaking to the author Edward Brooke Hitching about his book, The Madman's Library, a compendium of some of the most curious books and manuscripts ever made. And as you'll hear, some of them are very strange indeed. I think for anyone who's ever been caught up in the romance of a of an old library or a secondhand bookshop, your book is essentially a dream come true because what it is is a collection of some of the weirdest, and I think it's fair to say some of them are really very weird, books and manuscripts that have ever been written. Can you give us a flavour of the range of texts that you collect in it? Yeah, it's, um, like you say, it's incredibly widely varied because the whole point of the book was to think, well, what are not just the books, but the kinds of books or the kinds of pockets in the history of printing and, and pre-printing in terms of the history of the written word that people might not have come across that might only be known if you studied that specific field in your academic um, uh, past and things like that. So, I mean, it ranges, it was just anything that had a great story to it. Um, so it ranges from themes of um, edible books, wearable books, books that aren't books. So going back, um, you know, thousands of years before uh, the Codex, which is what we refer to, obviously, when we talk about the book today, choirs of pages bound together between two hard materials. So it's looking at every possible way that a definition of a book has been stretched and, and broken in the past and currently around the world. Um, so there's books made of cheese. There are books that were designed to sort of injure or kill, uh, books written by the devil, um, books that are so large theoretically, they if they were printed, they destroy the universe. I mean, it, it that's the kind of flavour. It's it's a sort of Baskin-Robbins approach. It's just hundreds of different flavours and you can dip in when you want to and taste different things as you go along. I think that's a perfect summary of it, ranging from books made of cheese to books written by the devil. These aren't exactly, <laughs> you know, the, the hardbacks and paperbacks that you're picking up in Waterstones. I'm going to just go straight in at the deep end with my first question here and ask... I, I couldn't quite believe how many books, it turns out, have been bound in human skin. Why? Yeah, well, quite. I mean, that not that the first um, question? It, it, it's mind-boggling. It's so, um, well, it's pretty offensive to our modern sensibilities. And we've got these notions of, 
um, you know, the Nazis doing nefarious things, making lamps with human skins. It seems like just an incredibly sadistic, psychopathic thing to do. But, you know, as with anything in history, you have to sort of interrogate. It's something that happened in our past, and you do have to examine, well, why? And as it turns out, um, it was a perfectly acceptable at the time um, decorative extra um, offered by printers and binders. Um, and when you when you think, well, what could possibly... What could possibly fit with a human skin binding? What p- kind of work would go inside that um, other than a book like a history of human skin binding? Um, what you find is really it, um, it, there's three different genres of literature um, as this art, I don't know if it evolved, but as it was, as it developed. Um, and initially you find it used to bind the records of um, criminals, murderers, people who, um, you know, we really wanted to make an example out of it, just how savage and terrible and anathema to decent law-abiding society these these uh, sort of outliers are, and make an example of them. And what better way to symbolically um, punish uh, as someone who commits these unthinkable crimes by l- physically binding them and, and turning them into the the greatest symbol of civilization, the book. Um, and so there are examples of, I mean, they're fairly well known, but I think we also consider perhaps they're cloaked in rumor as well. We're not quite sure how many are confirmed examples of human skin, but there are, there are murderers. Uh, there's a famous example of a highwayman who presented a copy of his um, autobiography uh, on his deathbed. He left orders that it would be delivered to his only victim who fought back and survived. And the highwayman actually sort of shot at him, but the bullet ricocheted off the the man's belt buckle. And so the highwayman was so um, uh, impressed with this um, act of bravery that he left him a copy of his um, autobiography bound in his own skin. Um, And as you move away from criminal accounts, you move into the field of medicine. um, And curious medical cases would be bound by surgeons in the skin of the subject, um, really as a way of uh, memorializing this person, in a sense, showing just how special they were, and not just because of the unusual ailment that they suffered from. Um, And then it evolves into more of a romantic metaphor in the 19th century, when this is still very much going on. Um, And the idea became more about encapsulating great literature, great works of art, in flesh in the same way that the body encapsulates the soul. And the most famous example of that is um, Camille Flammarion, the French um, writer-astronomer, um, who, and this is a story that he confirmed to the newspapers, uh, was at a party when he complimented a young countess on, on, the, on her beautiful skin, the charm of her skin. It turned out that she was dying of a terminal illness, I presume tuberculosis or something. And one day later, there's a knock at his door, and there's a, a French surgeon standing there with a package saying he just flayed the, quote, marvelously attractive young woman who had left orders on her deathbed that her skin be presented to her hero, Flammarion, um, for him to bind the, his latest work in, whatever that might be. So there's a copy of his um, book, Le Tier de Ciel, uh, from 1877, um, bound in this um, charming skin of the Countess. Um, and it actually, it, it goes on into the early 20th century, but then it becomes more, um, the references that you find looking for um, evidence of it become more recollections of binders and printers. Um, and, th- and especially with, you know, little things like world wars going on, it just becomes so sort of disgusting and, and um, antithetical to good taste that it, it dies away. 
As you say, um, I think that's what's so intriguing about these stories that we just balk at the idea as something incredibly grisly and macabre, but actually the motivations weren't necessarily macabre in themselves. If we're talking about books made from the human body, as we are, um, then I have to ask you also about Saddam Hussein, who features in the book. I wonder if you could explain to the listeners why I'm bringing him up. Again, yes, exactly. I'm a perfect example of um, a, a just a, an astoundingly curious work, written work. Um, and it's a story that uh, I I think I've, I heard at the time and again thought it was maybe a little rumoured, but I, I, a lot of people I meet have, have never um, heard of it. So in 1997, um, Saddam Hussein commissioned uh, a master calligrapher of Baghdad to create a, um, I think it's an 805-page copy of the Quran uh, manuscript uh, to be written in Saddam Hussein's own blood. So over a period of... I think two years he had around 50 pints of his own blood withdrawn and to be mixed in with the ink and the calligraphic chemicals. And this work, the blood Quran of Saddam Hussein, was produced. Now, obviously, this is not your average man um, creating something like this, and it's very much deemed uh, a total monstrosity in, in Islam to do such. It's completely haram and forbidden to do this. Um, but the fascinating thing is it presents... Uh, continues to present a dilemma to its archivists who bundle it away after the fall of Baghdad into an archive somewhere under under the streets of Baghdad. And no one knows to this day what to do with it because it's forbidden to create it, but it's also forbidden to destroy a Quran. And it did go on display. I do include a photo of it, amazingly, in the book, showing um, it behind its pages out on display in this glass case. Um, so we, we know it did at least did exist if it if it doesn't still, um, and it sits there supposedly um, in this archive of which there are three separate keys needed to open it. Each one is given to a different public official, so no one can just sort of sneak in and have a peek. Um, and there there it lies. But in terms of the tradition of blood writing, this was a fairly recent example of a very long ancient art. And I go back all the way looking at the practice in sort of Buddhist writing where it's deemed um, a sort of an ascetic act of um, sacrifice, earning good karma to sort of prick your skin, snap your bones and write in, in giving yourself to the literature, imbuing yourself and it with this sort of divine power. Um, but you can shift all over the place. So alongside this, if you think, well, in a, in a, in a theoretical life, Library, which is essentially what this collection is, what would sit on the shelf beside it. Um, and so I remember talking to a book dealer at Mags Brothers, a, a, a great sort of London rare bookshop, and she said, oh yeah, blood writing. Yes, now, um, a few years ago, we did have a copy of a, um, a diary of a shipwreck from, I think, 1842 called the Blendon Hall. Um, and the captain and a few others survived, and all the captain had... Uh, at his disposal to keep records was a few bundles of the the time sort of washed ashore, a writing desk, uh, pens, but no ink. And so he used what was available to him. So the subtitle of this book, Fate of the Blendon Hall, is written in the blood of the penguin. 
Um, and it was entirely written in Penguin Blood, which is astonishing. And then you discover that in 1977, there was a Marvel Comics uh, book that was put out featuring the American rock band Kiss, um, who agreed to have their blood withdrawn to be mixed in with the ink. And this comic book was printed with blood and proclaims on the outside, written in the blood of Kiss. It was a huge selling point. Um, so it's fascinating to sort of dart around and see these various completely contrasting examples of the same um, method of production. Um, when I've been reading this book in preparation for the interview, as much as it's about books, what it really illustrates to me is how strange and bizarre some humans through history and their behaviours have been and how obsessive almost and dedicated to creating certain things people have been. It's as much about eccentric people that made books as the books themselves. Who were some of the most eccentric people that you featured in the book? Oh, I mean, yes, you, I mean, what, you, what you've hit on is something that I, it was, uh, I'm basically using in many examples books just to tell my favourite stories of these eccentric characters. It, it, it's just an excuse. Um, I, I mean, thinking randomly, there are so many in there, but I think um, one, one, one example that I remember... Th- reading this book and and thinking it had to be, it's a classic example of wondering whether it was a hoax in itself, but there was a gentleman, an American clergyman, who produced a book in 1858 called John Murray Spear, who claimed to channel the um, spirits of various American presidents, um, which he called the Association of Electricizers. Um, And he commanded quite a following because he was clearly slightly out of his mind. Um, So very charismatic uh, he and his, for want of a better word, cult, retreated to a wooden lodge in the backwoods of the Mississippi, um, disappeared for nine months because what they were doing was he was following instructions that he recorded in his book, this story, um, following divine instructions to build a robot messiah, essentially, out of parts of wire, copper, and uh, parts of a dining room table. And then he anointed one of his female followers as the new Mary, and that was her title. And in a very elaborate ceremony, she was to give birth to this robotic messiah. Um, Obviously, it didn't quite work out that way. And he writes that um, afterwards that, well, I'm, I'm very grateful for the time and the revelations that have allowed me to see beyond the clouds and the, the, the secrets that the spirits have bestowed upon me. But now I must um, move off to my next adventure. And he was never seen or heard from again. Um, and so that's this weird little pocket in history that I, I'm not sure would really fit in many other books. It's specifically it crammed into this book. But it did, again, it made me think, OK, so if this is on a shelf, what do we put next? What do we put beside this? And that led to this story from 1933 of um, a Shinto priest in Japan who d- uh, discovered documents, uh, so the story goes, that um, appeared to be, written in Japanese, the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. Um, now, what happened with this, this it, actually led to a physical uh fallout of consequences where there is a village called Shingo which is about seven hours north of Tokyo where thousands of Christian pilgrims still make the journey every year to visit this one village because everyone in this village believes they are related to Jesus Christ because in these documents which unfortunately disappeared during the war it was claimed that Jesus actually sneaked away from the crucifixion his brother helpfully took his place 
Jesus fled to Japan, where he lived to a grand old age as a farmer, but he was described as looking a bit like a goblin. I hope I'm not offending anyone, but this is what the document claimed. Um, and and lived to lived to an age of uh, farming, having grandchildren, um, where he died. And to this day, again, I include a picture of this. You can visit his grave, which is beautiful little grave with white picket fencing and a, and a plaque explaining the story, um, maintained by the local yogurt factory. Uh, and there's a gift shop. You can buy Japanese Jesus coasters and mugs and things. Um, but this bizarre story, which has gone on for decades and has a real-world impact, all came out of this, I'm going to go out on a limb and say forged document. So and again, it's like you said, it's just it's another example of um, this bizarre eccentric episode born out of um, uh, a curious bit of writing. How did you go about finding and collecting all of these stories and manuscripts? Yes, it was about 10 years of research, but also I'm the son of, my dad was a rare book dealer. I grew up in a rare book shop. And when you're, I'm sure as other people have found, when you're not an expert in a particular subject, the way someone tries to get you interested is to tell you the most interesting part, the most curious thing that they can think of in that field. And so that's what I was used to seeing. I was used to seeing maps on the walls and being most curious about the ones with sea monsters, you know, and it sort of goes on from there. But from having this perspective of being inside the rare book world, the antiquarian book world, which I think from the outside by a lot of people is maybe viewed as quite a dry, crusty, grey-haired, old, um, locked-off world, um, was to show with these stories is that actually it's just a bit like a geode. You know, from the outside, it's unremarkable. You crack it open, there's amazing <laughs> glittering things inside. Um, and to show how exciting a rare book auction or rare book catalogue is to flick through if, for example, you've never come across it or thought that it was just a, a closed-off world. Um, so it's from there, I just talked to a lot of rare book dealers as, as much as I talked to librarians, because dealers have a great magpie eye for a good story. They know exactly how to hook your interest in something that you, you never thought you would be interested in. Um, and they're also very sort of generous in contributing images to the book, because I think you have to. I mean, it's heavily, heavily illustrated, this book, deliberately, because I think otherwise... Uh, there'd be a risk of not quite believing what you were reading, thinking it was all just sort of um, um, repeated uh, nonsense from earlier works. As you say, there are a lot of illustrations in here, and some of the most eye-popping, shall we say, um, come from a 1775 work called The Compendium. Is it The Compendium of Demonology and Magic? It's a real shame that this is an audio format and we can't kind of share this um, with our, share the pictures with our audience. But I wonder if you could explain a bit about this book and why it um, is so attention grabbing, let's say. Yeah, I think, well, this, this seemed like an obvious chapter to have to really focus on to find, um, go through the history of grimoires, even though that was a later term for, you know, magical manuscripts and find the most curious and, yeah, and like you say, this visually stunning because in 1775, of course, the book is actually dated in, in the, to the 11th century by its author, which was a standard tactic in producing grimoires because A, it made them seem much more mysterious to be filled with ancient knowledge, but it also, protected the author uh, with as little information about who created it as possible, save them from being thrown onto the same bonfire that the book was being thrown onto. Um, but yes, this, this manuscript that's uh, informally known as the Compendium of Demonology and Magic is in the collection of the um, Wellcome Library in London. Um, and what you find, because it's written at a, at a point in time where 
obviously the hysteria over witchcraft has subsided. A bit of common sense has entered into um, the general um, discourse and and it's realized that um, not everything can be blamed on witches and, and women specifically. Um, and what you so what you find is this artist is working with much more freer sense of artistic license. So he's really embellishing it, or she is embellishing every detail. And so what you find as well as standard repeated grimoire information, the standard incantations and spells about how to summon demons. Um, there's a lot of warnings in here as well. And one of my favorite illustrations, and you wouldn't believe the amount of um, back and forth emailing I had to do with my publisher about how many devil penises are we allowed to show? Is this going to be a problem internationally? Um, so what, yeah, one of my favorite illustrations is of a couple, a pair of treasure hunting men who have brought all the right equipment. They followed the instructions of earlier grimoires. Um, they brought their book of spells, their lamp. Um, you can see their shovels with them. They've, they've dug a hole in the ground because this was the most popular use of magic to find buried treasure. And then all of a sudden you see a, an enormous, conservatively nine-foot-tall demon with a cockerel head, enormous claws, uh, enormous demon tackle, which he's using to... Um, pardon me, urinate on their lamp, while also seizing one of the treasure hunters, um, forms a pretty unambiguous warning against this practice. Um, because I think there's a book called, I mentioned later, a book uh, in the same genre of, it's called The Book of Buried Pearls. And what was astounding about coming across this story following this compendium of, of demonology was that the issue with um, treasure hunting, hunting for buried treasure, was a huge problem in Egypt. And in fact, it was described by one minister in the government in the early 20th century as being more damaging to their landscape and their um, physical cultural heritage than, than all the wars that had occurred in Egypt because people were going absolutely nuts, digging everything up, um, following the guidance of this, uh, uh, this grimoire, this book that claimed to know secret um, divine sourced knowledge of where treasure was hidden in the desert uh, by the pyramids. Um, and so what's interesting is seeing books that we generally view these magical works as being representative of uh, locked off in a certain period, that sort of um, gray line between science and religion and fantasy, um, as that being a, uh, something just sort of self-contained in this lost episode of history. But they carry on and on, and then we sort of reach the realm of spiritualist writing. Um, and this fashion is Victorian turned Edwardian and, and on fashion of mediums channeling ghosts, um, producing books of poetry, which I, I've really enjoyed trying to sort of collect as well. Um, so the spiritual world, the demonic world is still alive and well in, um, in terms of um, literary tradition. Um, I think I even include a picture of a, a guide to occultism produced for um, American law enforcement, uh, how to how to spot if a cult is has been sacrificing to Satan in the local area. Apparently, you should uh, apparently skulls and shaved heads is a dead giveaway that there's child sacrifice going on in a basement. So, so it's it's a fascinating world to dip in to, and then a big relief to dip out of at the end. Still to come on the History Extra podcast with art and the art world, art collecting, where people often say, well, that's very expensive. Wouldn't you just want a photocopy of it or a nice reproduction? But to me, that's always like offering a hungry person a photograph of a sandwich. It's just not going to be the same thing. I think 
as you say, uh, the, the imagination involved in the creation of some of these um, supernatural texts is just mind-boggling, but almost as intriguing as as the works of pure imagination are the works that are trying to replicate reality, but now we know to not quite be accurate. So I'm thinking of, um, say, books of medieval beasts where they're trying to recreate animals, for example, that they've never seen, that kind of thing. And you you say that quite often the errors in encyclopedias or um, books of knowledge, especially when you go back to, say, like medieval era, are often the things that really make them the most charming. Yes, um, I think definitely, I think we can be quite, um, snobby and hasty to judge. There are a lot of memes that go around on the internet of, you know, look at this, these medieval artists believed animals to look like this. When we've completely, um, that's not taking into account a huge amount of information that's presented um, satirically in this in this artistic form. It's, 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 it's not just that um, no one had seen an alligator and so they just guessed at it. Obviously, that's, that is what they had to do. But we've lost a whole sort of code of language, a visual code in these drawings of, of how we um, interpreted the world, how, how sceptical we are of rumour. Um, perhaps drawing an animal in an exaggerated way is a way of ridiculing a written description that has been received very sort of unverifiably. Um, but definitely, yeah, on the theme of collections, that was, again, um, a running theme that that obviously had to be explored because you have to include the medieval bestiaries, um, which is featuring what, what, what you've mentioned, what we've discussed. Um, but what you find in that world is these authors are just the type of person that you mentioned earlier, people who were obsessed and completely driven. Quite often people who produced um, incredibly wide-ranging um, collections focused on a very specific um, area. Um, and so what's really interesting is seeing what um, these collectors, what their one, their singular passion was. And so, for example, there's um, there's a manuscript from, I believe, the 16th century called the, the Fish Book. And it was it's this enormous, enormous um, collection of everything to do with marine life, everything that was known at that time, these beautiful full-page illustrations. But for the author, there was literally no other form of interest. This was the the pursuit of his life. Um, and and obviously this is something that continues to this day. I mean, I, I loved, I've always loved Francis Gross and his book, which is still has come back into fashion, uh, fashion now, the um, Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue. But I love the idea of someone going out into the world and saying, um, you know, I am going to collect all this information. Past sources maybe can't be trusted. We need them. We need a contemporary snapshot. So I love these kinds of um, uh, these sort of uh, pioneers um, or, or social explorers who gather all this information. Um, because what what better sense of a particular time? What what better sense of of back alley Georgian life can you get than from reading Francis Gross's um, nocturnal explorations with his terrified assistant leading him down, um, you know, down to the docks, down to the sort of the hardest pubs and so on, and collecting all these slang terms. I think you've got to be a very particular type of person to embark on a project like a dictionary or an encyclopedia, haven't you? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Um, and in fact, I wonder how well known is it? It's become better known recently because there was a great book by Simon Winchester. Um, Surgeon of Crowthorn is the title. And it's just about the origins of the Oxford Dictionary, the first Oxford Dictionary when it was produced. 
Um, and because obviously this, there hadn't been a, a, a concise dictionary produced since Dr. Johnson. It was, obvious, it was an enormous project, um, and the organisers very early on realised they were going to need to crowdsource it. It's one, of, one great early example of crowdsourcing. So appeals were um, posted in bookshops and libraries for the public to submit definitions um, and e- example sentences of, of all the words they can think of. And one of the most prolific providers of information, going over 10 years, um, was a gentleman, uh, was a doctor... Um, stationed at, um, let, let's say, a hospital um, and who struck up a friendship with the um, main, main compiler of the dictionary. For 10 years, they, be- they became great friends with this pen pal relationship. And after a while, um, you know, the, there was a desire to meet up. He, he, they wanted, to, um, they wanted to, to meet in person. And this doctor says, well, I, I will agree to this, having having declined for ten years. But you must come to me. So he sends, he gives him the train station to to catch a train to. Um, I says I'll send you a carriage. Carriage is waiting there. It leads up to this great country house. Um, the uh, lexicographer is led into this grand office where a man is standing there and says, "My friend, it's so good to finally meet you." And the man turns around and says, oh, no, I'm actually the superintendent of, of, of Broadmoor. Um, you, the person you want is actually one of our, our patients, um, a murderer. Um, so that's, again, a very sort of startling example of, of, uh, of an origin, an eccentric story to the origin of something that we take for granted as very sort of mundane in a way, the dictionary. So it's wonderful to see these things in new lights. Oh, yeah, completely. Um, another thing that you look at, uh, which brought a few chuckles was literary hoaxes. Um, what are some of the wittiest or most ingenious? Literary hoaxes, I, uh, I I've always been fond of collecting because they're not expensive. Not very many people are interested in them. Perhaps they're viewed as being a bit silly, but they are. They are wonderful stories, um, and it, it's an ancient art. It goes right back to. Well, for example, there's the story of Alexander of Abinatakos, um, an ancient Greek, we're talking um, second century AD, um, who founded a prophetic snake cult by doctoring tablets, creating this hoax literature, burying it in a shallow grave in a temple, waiting for it to be discovered. Um, and these tablets proclaimed that the god of the local temple um, was looking for a rebranding, wanted to be known as Glycon, was now a snake deity. And so when the tablets were discovered, Alexander arrived in his prophet's robes, declared himself the earthly um, communicatory vessel of this god, and founded this cult that we know from archaeological evidence existed, the cult of Glycon existed for at least 100 years following his death. Um, And apparently he held sway over his followers, uh, using tricks. And it's the Syrian writer Lucian, who is the sole source of the story, who tells us that um, Alexander essentially had a snake sock puppet. And that's how he managed to, <laughs> sounds ridiculous, how he managed to just convince his followers um, to be transfixed in their faith, uh, which apparently he sort of operated it using invisible horse hairs. And uh, it was this uh, sock puppet snake that would communicate the information from Glycon, which Alexander was able to provide because he would secretly read the questions that the followers would submit, thinking they were um, private. Um, and what's amazing is that in the in the 90s, when a Romanian train station was being um, refurbished, they dug up and discovered a marble statue, a snake statue of Glycon, 
and it was celebrated, this discovery, on a, on a national banknote in 1995. And I put photos of both of these things in the book, again, to sort of prove that this was a real thing. But, I mean, literary hoaxes, they range over the centuries. And one great discovery was to find that one of my favourite stories, which is sort of legendary among book dealers and catalogers, is the story of the, um, the Fort Sass affair, which was um, a little... Uh, just this tiny little event in Belgium, which is probably the weirdest event in literary history that's ever occurred, when in 1840 um, a catalogue was sent to the to big collectors and libraries of Europe um, of around, I think, about 80 books. But each title was stupendously rare. Um, n most of them had never been heard of. Each one valued today at least um, quarter of a million pounds each, the value of them. Um, and they were from the rarest printers they were uh they were um accounts of um the sort of nefarious activities of of european royals um and so there was this mad scramble across the continent to descend on this tiny little town of of Banche in um, belgium to attend this auction of the private collection of the comte de fortsas this very eccentric and wealthy count um and hurtling towards this town in carriages was um, the print, uh, an emissary of the Princess Deline, who had been informed that there might be uh, embarrassing information about the sexual exploits of her grandfather in there. There were stories about disgusting details of the scrofula of kings. Um, there were basically representatives of every major library um, who had been given essentially blank checks to collect these works. So there was this mad um, sort of bibliomaniacal bloodlust in the air. They all turn up at this town and run around searching for um, the auction house on Rue de l'Eglise. And it, it, the first problem came when they couldn't find that actual street. And when they questioned locals, no one had ever heard of the Count Forsas. They'd never heard of the street. They weren't aware of the auction. But then posters were printed up saying, oh, I'm terribly sorry for the confusion. The, um, all, the, all the books have been actually presented to the town library and you can inquire about them there. Uh, but this caused more confusion because there was no town library. Um, and for 13 years, uh, there was no solution to this. The, the catalogue had been completely invented by someone. The count was completely fictional. Obviously, all the books were fictional. And it was this bizarre little blip in history until one day um, the town printer finally revealed that it was just a retired soldier who had thought he'd have a little fun. And it was only then, and this gentleman named Renier, that people remembered seeing him among these um, panicked crowds, enjoying himself immensely at all the confusion. And my, the best discovery out of this whole story, personally, for me, was discovering that my it was my great-great-uncle, who was William Blades, a printer, who produced the first English translation of this catalogue. Clearly, we shared the same kind of sense of humour. Um, so it was a lot of fun, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of people having just a, a merry old time in this book and people playing around with language is another example of that. Um, to faintly ridiculous degrees. Um, so people writing, for example, the shortest poem in the world or the longest novel. What were some of the feats like that that took your fancy? Um, I, I, I have to, I really enjoy the shortest play supposedly ever written, um, which is set in a, a sort of mountain lodge of a pioneer. And there's a knock at the door. The pioneer gets up, answers the door. And there's a man standing there saying, please help me. There's a bounty on my head. And the pioneer says, how much? That's it. That's the end of the play. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so yes, exactly. Finding finding little nuggets like that, but I think it's because um, um, my I, I work as a writer for a TV show um, QI, and the all day, every day during the writing period of that show is searching for these kinds of nuggets and searching for ways to stitch them together. So this sort of book works in that same same sort of way. I think before I move on to my kind of concluding questions, I do just have to throw in one question, which is, I need you to tell us the story of the book fish. When you're looking for a good story to a book, I guess one of the best kinds of stories is a, a book that has appeared out of nowhere. There's there's, for example, there's a book, um, there's a story of the Liber Linteus in there, which was um, the wrappings of a mummy that a Croatian uh, diplomat bought during the Egyptomania in, in the 1840s, that only in 1890, when the mummy had been donated to the Zagreb Museum, that they realized that the mummy was actually wrapped in strips of linen that was an Etruscan manuscript um, and that at one point had been a three meter wide canvas telling this um, um, telling this um, story so uh, another example of that was the bookfish where in uh, so the story goes in 1626 at Cambridge fish market a suspiciously fat codfish was sliced open um, by the fishwife and outslid this um, rather goopy um, cloth parcel and when she unwrapped the cloth she found um, a copy of the book which was called um, Preparation to the Cross um, and the funny thing about this is that it this event was confirmed um, by Dr Joseph Mead of Christ College Cambridge uh, when he wrote to St Martin Studderville and said you know when I first saw it I didn't believe it but it, it seemed almost turned into a jelly and consumed and I saw it with my own eyes you know the fish the piece of sailcloth, the book, um, and it's obviously it stunk as well. Um, and it turned out that a hundred years earlier, a Protestant um, writer named John Frith had been um, kept prisoner by Cardinal Wolsey in a fish cellar and had written this book, Preparation for the Cross. Um, and somehow a copy of this book, and no one ever established how, found its way into this fish's belly. So when the story gets out a hundred years later after the discovery, the book is reprinted, republished um, with the subtitle, uh, what's well, called Vox Pisces, or Voice of the Fish, um, or the book fish containing three treaties which were found in the belly of a codfish. And it even included a helpful little woodcut illustration as the frontispiece showing the fish stall and the fish sliced open and the pages peeking out. It's a bizarre story. <laughs> it's a lovely story. So... It, this book very much is about books' physical form as much as the contents of the books themselves. Do you fear about the future of books? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a funny thing. I, I, I've uh, Someone else asked me that recently, and it, the first thing it brought to mind was um, a quote from Stephen Fry, who said that at the time when the Kindle was becoming popular, he said, I think the Kindle is as much a threat to the book as an escalator is to a staircase. Um I, th I think when you've handled, especially when you've handled antiquarian books, there's nothing like the smell of a rare bookshop when it when you sort of dink in through the door and and this wall of um, perfume hits you. Um, and dealers like my dad, for example, who um, they can date a book purely from the smell of the paper and the bindings. They can tell you where this paper was produced and when. Um, 
there's, there's, I can't imagine anything that can replace the sensory experience of handling books. I personally, I, I just still very uncomfortable reading books on an, on a screen. I just, I'm not trying to reject it. I'm not trying, you know, it's just very uncomfortable. Um, and to me, it's always seemed a bit like, um, with, with art and the art world, art collecting, where people often say, well, that's very expensive. Wouldn't you just want a photocopy of it or a nice reproduction? But to me, that's always like offering a hungry person a photograph of a sandwich. It's just not going to be the same thing. So say you had a secret fortune stashed away somewhere. I don't know, you might do, but that you could use to acquire, <laughs> you could that you could use to acquire just one book or manuscript to keep in your own personal collection what do you think you'd go for I think it's it's a toss-up isn't it because would you want something very visual um when you get bored of the actual writing would you want something that contains so many more words in it um at the same time I mean I uh I for me one of the most exciting areas of of history is the history of exploration particularly polar exploration when there's there's less sort of uh, problematic, um, you know, colonial um, issues going on, and it's more about bravery and heroism, and you know, um, and one of the most interesting books from that time is called the Aurora Australis, which was produced by Shackleton's um, expedition, I think, nineteen oh eight. It's the first book written, illustrated, uh, printed, and bound in the Antarctic. Um, it's 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 beautiful. They had to write the book with ink, print it with ink, just sort of held over candlelight to stop the ink from instantly freezing. And they bound it in. It's a very rare. I think only only sort of forty or fifty copies. But they bound it in the boards of the tea case of their expedition. So each copy is unique. And when you open one, um, there's sort of strips of the let of the original lettering of these supply crates in there. And it's such, it's such a good example of a book that is more than a book. It just evokes so much. It's so sort of tactile. It's, it's, it's an artifact along with everything else. And I can't imagine you would ever get bored of, of breaking that open and just smelling it, sensing, sensing the adventure, especially as in the future, um, you know, who knows how long the Antarctic in the form that we know of it is going to last. So I think it's this amazing time capsule that just sucks you into this other world of adventure. That was Edward Brooke Hitching. The Madman's Library, The Greatest Curiosities of Literature, is available now, published by Simon and Schuster. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow to hear a lecture on German Jews in the First World War. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.